Other way. There we go. That was Joey's fault, not mine. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Now, it's great to be here. Uh, of course, uh, Greg mentioned that we, we own property in Paradise for a number of years because Carol's family is all from Paradise. Chico, Durham, my wife was born there. Uh, her father and mother met at Chico State, and so when they retired, we kind of tried to stay close to them, and uh, Carol has about 20-plus family members in that area, and uh, I think they collectively they lost seven homes and a business. Um, as you know, I, I don't have to bring anybody up to speed on the devastation. It's, it's actually not only the greatest devastation a wildfire has ever done in California, it's now the greatest wildfire de devastation in the United States in the history of our country. So uh, it's, it's unbelievable. And my father-in-law, who's 98, he would have been one of the 96 people that have already uh, died in the fire if he hadn't answered his phone. Uh, my family members there couldn't get to his home because of all the roadblocks and things, but my uh, sister-in-law called him and he answered it, which, you know, three-fourths of the time he won't even answer his phone. Um, he still lives independently, and she said, you have to get out of your house right now. You have to walk out into the cul-de-sac and try to find someone to take you away. So he immediately went out without it. He just had his clothes on, his wallet, and his walking stick. That's it. And uh, we're joking now about how he just barely escaped by the skin of his teeth because he even forgot his dentures. Huh? Huh? I mean, it's true. <laughs> it was that fast. It was out the door that quickly. Uh, but the last person leaving his neighborhood had one seat, picked him up, and took him to safety. So, yeah, that's good news. Um, wow. So I've, I've been to Chico twice. I'm going back tomorrow, and it's like when you're there. I was there Friday after the fire began, and it's like uh, nighttime at noon. It's just remarkable, and, and the smoke and the darkness. It's cold, very, very cold because the sun can't break through. And, uh, yeah, when the president of the United States uh, flies to uh, Chico, well, to Beale Air Force Base, then to Chico, then up to Paradise, and he, and he does it with Jerry Brown, you know, something really bad has happened, you know? Jeez. Well, we're in the book of James, and I, I'll talk a little bit more about, maybe about the fire, but um, we'll try to get focused here on, uh, on the book of James here. Today we're, in, in, we're going to talk about the ultimate battle we all face. It's in chapter 3 of the book of James, and uh, the title to my message, if I can get this straight, is Me and My Big Mouth, all right? Anybody relate to that? If you don't, you're self-deceived. <laughs> uh, yeah, here's one of the most famous characters in American uh, culture. Um, it's um, Homer Simpson. We should have a contest. Who can say, no, no, right? I can't say it very well. My voice is too high. Uh, me and my big mouth. You know, somebody went, you know, it's the longest-running television show in the history of America, and it's had 28 seasons. Somebody went back and counted every dough, he said, and it's 1,130. 1,130. Have you ever said that about you and your big mouth? The only difference is you can add 100 times 1,130. 1,000 times 100. 
1,130, maybe 10,000 times when you have said something or expressed something or, or used your words, the Bible talks about the tongue, but obviously that means our words, uh, where it wasn't what it should have been. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this tremendous challenge that we face um, because of the trouble we get into with our words. Um, uh, does this look like anybody you know? Like when you're looking at a mirror, my gosh. <laughs> That's what I call a big mouth. Now last week, we actually learned a little bit about uh, faith, a little bit, a lot about faith without works is dead. And I thought Isaac did a great job on that message. It's a very tough subject. I've preached through that subject, and finding the balance between Paul and James is really tough. He talked about how Martin Luther almost rejected the book of James, called it an epistle of straw, uh, because it sounds like he's saying we're justified by our works, and of course that can't possibly be true. Um, but concept of faith without works um, means that if we're professing that we have saving faith, uh, it's easy to do that, but it's altogether a different thing to actually live a transformed personal life. And as you know, the book of James is very practical. They call it the New Testament book of Proverbs because it's just straightforward, in-your-face, practical stuff, and today's is certainly no exception. Throughout the book of James, he's telling us over and over that there are certain signs that will distinguish between somebody who has a profession of faith, Christian faith, and somebody that has a possession of Christian, true Christian faith. What James is saying throughout his book is that true faith will be demonstrated. John Calvin said, it's faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. There must always be evidence of true faith. So in today's passage, James cuts to the chase regarding one of the most important places where the reality of our faith will be tested. <laughs> tested every day of your life from where, when you were born till now and when you die. Uh, it's the reality test for sure. And it's the test of the very words that proceed out of our mouth. In the first 12 verses of chapter 3 we're going to look at this morning, James tells us that we must demonstrate our faith by learning how to tame our tongue. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough thing for sure. And so let's look at this passage. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we, that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole body as well. And look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, Yet it boasts of great things. And this is what made this passage kind of unusual for me because, you know, Isaac asked me to speak on it two months ago, I think. Um, but it says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Uh, they're still investigating the, the campfire and what has caused this amazing devastation. And they, they don't know for certain, but I mean, it could have been 
you know, a match. It could have been a campfire itself. Everybody thought at first it was started by a campfire because it was called a campfire, but that's not the case. It could have been started by the spark off of a lawnmower blade hitting a rock or uh, a, 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 somebody pulling their boat or something and the chain hitting the pavement. It's that simple now because the fuel is so... Uh, so combustible and you know the winds came it was just the perfect storm but you know here's the point how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire and the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness the tongue is set among our members staining the whole body setting on fire the entire course of our life and set on fire by hell for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creatures can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind but look at this verse but no human being can tame the, tum, the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth, um, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? or a grapevine produce figs. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So three points, simple, the seriousness of our struggle, secondly, the seriousness of our words, and finally, the power of the tongue. Let's look first at the seriousness of our struggle. Uh, James puts it earlier that the challenge is this issue of taming the tongue. And back in chapter 1, verse 26, James said, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. <laughs> pretty strong. That's a pretty strong statement. So our challenge today is to recognize that God expects each of us to verify our faith by learning how to control our speech, our tongue, our words. What we do with our words really, really matters. So... We're supposed to throw a lasso around our tongue, right there, yippee ki -yay. bridle that tongue, and why not use some bob wire while you're at it? <laughs> I couldn't resist throwing that one up there. Now, right, here's the thing. Now, right up front, let me say, when I read this passage, I'm truly staggered by the fact that James tells us right up front, the battle with our tongue can never be won. You know, it's like going into a football game telling your team, there's no way we can possibly win this game. And that's what he tells us. Verse 8 makes the reality of this unmistakably clear because he simply says right there, no human being can tame the tongue. In other words, humanly speaking, we are powerless because of our fallen nature to actually bridle or control or control our tongue on our own. Humanly speaking, we are powerless over our tongue, and thus, without the help of God, our tongues are unmanageable. That's the point. You remember in Alcoholics Anonymous, the first step is we admitted we were pow powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. I think this has to be a recognition of, on our part about our speech, about our words, about the tongue. We have to admit up front to God that we are powerless over our speech and that our lives have become unmanageable. It's difficult, but with God's help, and our dependency upon him, we can pray like the psalmist did, that God would help us win this unwinnable war of the tongue. The psalmist said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock 
and my Redeemer. And how about this prayer? This is a good one to put on the refrigerator. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And you'd be watching that door constantly because bad things can come forth and really hurt. Now, the seriousness of our words is highlighted because James makes a case by starting with a case study. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, James isn't saying this to discourage, for instance, pastors and teachers from becoming ministers and preachers. Instead, it's a mini case study that is attempting to get an important principle across, and I, I call the principle simply this. Our words count, and God counts our words. Our words count, and the Bible tells us that God counts our words. It's kind of remarkable to think about. Um, clearly, James tells us that God himself sits in judgment over our words, and therefore, the more words we speak, the more evaluation will be God will be doing over the words that come out of our mouth. This is especially true for those in positions of teaching because they talk a lot. And so God judges them exponentially by the volume of their speech. They are to be held more accountable for what they say. So if you're an introvert, you're shy, you're quiet, you don't want to be a teacher and you typically keep your mouth shut, then you're one of the few smart people on the planet. <laughs> Guys like me are in big trouble. Uh, I, I know I'm going to face a huge judgment because I'm such a talker. <laughs> I talk, 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 talk. Here's what the wise man of Proverbs said. He said, when words are many, what's going to happen? Transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Different translation, too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. That's good advice, huh? How about this translation? It says... Don't talk so much. You keep putting your foot in your mouth. Be sensible and turn off the flow. It's basically like, think before you speak. Now, see, I'm the kind of person, just my personality, I talk to think. Other people think to talk, but not me. So I tend to, it's, I can get myself into trouble. Someone said there are two kinds of people who don't say too much, those who are quiet and those who talk too much. True. Here's what it says, the more talk, the less truth, the wise measure their words. I threw that one in, the more talk, the less truth, because of the election that took place 12 days ago. Well, James 3 is clearly a direct warning to teachers, but it's also an indirect warning to each and every one of us. You know why? Because he's simply saying exactly what Jesus himself said. Jesus said, and I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. That's how important this is to God, all right? Every careless word, every thought, that's what the word idle means, every thoughtless, harmful word that you ever speak. The whole point here is that God holds us accountable for the things we say. I don't think we realize how important this whole subject is, but we, never, we must never forget that words count and that God counts our words. Words are powerful. Words, words impact people. Words, words, <laughs> words, I got up at 2.30 this morning. Words have influence. Words have consequences. 
And this is probably one of the most amazing texts in the Bible. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Those who love it will eat its fruits. In other words, whether you speak words of death or words of life, you have to live with the fruit of your expressions. Both the ones you make to yourself and out of your own mouth describing who you are as well as the words you place on other people. Here's how another translation says, the tongue can bring death or life. Those who love to talk will reap the consequences. If we speak death, we have to live with the fruit of it. If we speak life, we live with the fruit of it. Our words can either be an oasis of encouragement or a desert of despair for people. They can give life and they can take it away. Notice this verse. Notice the word picture that's used here. It says, careless words stab like a sword, but wise words bring healing. Do you know what that means, what a verse like this means? In the King James, I think it says, rash words are like the thrusting of a sword. What it means is that hurtful words penetrate our innermost being. Hurtful words go deep inside us. They wound us. They sink into us. They become part of us. Do you remember as children, we would all recite the, uh, the nursery rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That rhyme is complete nonsense. It's absolutely, totally unbiblical. It's completely wrong spiritually, emotionally, and psych psychologically. It's wrong in every way. It's just simply not true. It should be recited like this. Sticks and stones will not only break my bones, but words have the power to break my spirit and destroy my soul. Now, I know that doesn't rhyme, but that's the truth. <laughs> That's the truth right there. <laughs> That's the one we should be reciting, all right? I bet you can still remember unkind, cruel words that were spoken to you in childhood and that you've never been able to forget. Now, to support his argument, James goes on to number three and speaks directly about the power of the tongue, all right? It's so powerful that James tells us that, number one, it has the power to direct the course of our life. It has the power to direct the course of our life. Notice James 3 again. He said, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they will obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. We still measure power in terms of the measurement of horses. Isn't that interesting? I mean, horses are pretty powerful things. They're like almost completely muscle, and yet if you put a bit into the sensitive mouth of a horse, you can... Make it go wherever you want it to go. You can turn it here, you can turn it there. You can guide their whole bodies. And look at ships also. This is sort of like amplifying the same principle. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So, also, the tongue. All right? Now, usually when we speak of the hurtfulness of the tongue, now this is just a little side note here, in my opinion, Although we usually speak of the hurtful damage that the tongue can do uh, to others, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, we often fail to consider that the most endangered person that is damaged by our words is ourself. There's no question about that. We all need to think about this. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The Bible says, be careful about how you think, because your thinking, your heart, those things... They, they determine the direction of your life. Our self-talk 
and the negative things we declare about ourselves have a profound effect upon us. That's obvious. That's true. The Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. James tells us that our words guide and direct us, that our words are something that we will obey. James tells us that our words turn us in this direction and that direction. They steer you just as a rudder steers a ship. That means our words actually lead the way into our future. I really believe that, and I'm not a name-it-claim-it prosperity person. I just think that stuff's terrible heresy. But I do know what we express out of our mouth is very, very powerful. And I actually believe every time we speak, we are prophesying our future. That's why we have to be very careful about the things that we say, the things we express. It's hard to overemphasize the magnitude of this point. It's so significant. The words we speak to ourselves, whether internally or out loud, have, the po have power, great power over us. Our self-talk clearly shapes our future, and this is why we must become students of the Scriptures. We must let God define us rather than talking and, and expressing negative things about ourselves all the time. Romans 12, 2 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need to watch the things you tell yourself. You need to watch the things you say out of your own mouth. They can break your spirit. You can break your own spirit with your words, let alone somebody else trying to do it to you. And so I think it's important that we develop biblical thinking and we let God define who we are instead of our own subjective sense and then expressing it to ourselves. So, the power of the tongue. The truth is it's so powerful that not only does it direct the course of our life, it also has the power to destroy people. We know that. James tells us how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The Message Bible says it only takes a spark, remember, to set off a forest fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of our lives. And where is the inspiration for all of this disaster coming? It's set on fire by hell. That's the word Gehenna. Remember Gehenna was the garbage dump uh, just so the southwest of Jerusalem, where they didn't have bulldozers in those days or whatever, and so they just kept that fire going. They threw dead bodies there, refuse, garbage, and stuff, and Jesus used Gehenna as a symbol of hell, and James takes the very same word. And using this graphic metaphor, James speaks about the incredible damage that the tongue can do. Got to watch that tongue. Because it can burn stuff up real quickly. He gives three illustrations. The first he calls a small fire. And speaking about small fires, this one that took place in paradise, in a matter of an hour, it was moving three miles an hour, and it just, you know, it's unprecedented. It destroyed the whole city. Um, as uh, Greg mentioned, we moved in February of this year. I was living in paradise at this time last year. And one of the things that is fatiguing is this time last year, we had a mandatory evacuation from our property. Eventually, that just becomes frustrating and, you know, just kind of scares the bejeebies out of you. But here's the, pro here's the problem. When you hear that over and over and over and over again and your house doesn't burn down, you start to hear it and not listen it to it. 
it becomes like woof, woof. And that's why a lot of people just go, hey, you know, I've heard this a dozen times. And so now 76 people perished, and I'm sure that number is going to continue to climb. And there are over 1,200 people that are unaccounted for. Uh, it's, it's just a remarkable disaster. Now, I appreciated the fact that many called, many emailed Carol and I, sent text messages, um, and were concerned. And providentially, as Greg mentioned, we were one of the lucky ones. But I can't possibly rejoice in that. It's not given me any comfort at all. In Jewish tradition, we are told that if a man is at work in his field and he sees smoke coming from his village and he prays, please God, not my house, it's called an empty prayer. It's called an empty prayer. The person who prays to God that a fire be at someone else's house instead of their own is asking God to put something bad on someone other than themselves. That's really a fascinating concept, isn't it? Wow, the reality of that has greatly tempered my good fortune. Um, there's no way to adequately describe. What's happened there? You've seen pictures? Look at that picture. The whole neighborhood's gone. Commercial buildings, hundreds and hundreds of them. Um, shopping centers. Um, they're saying that 90% of the city's been destroyed. And even people that didn't lose their homes literally have really lost their homes anyway. You know, obviously, the real estate market there is, doesn't exist, frankly, and won't for years. And without electricity, gas, water, infrastructure of any kind almost, those homes, they might have been better getting burnt down too. Because at least you could make an insurance claim. But those homes will take years, this city will take years, probably decades to rebuild because the infrastructure was damaged so much, so much. And of course, far more tragic than that is the loss of life. People that just couldn't or didn't uh, flee when this devastation occurred. It burned over 150,000 acres, destroying t over 10,000 homes, 336 commercial buildings, a total of some 12,263 structures. Now, I've heard of fires where it was so devastating, 150 homes were lost, right? We've heard that a hundred times. 12,000? 12,000? Unbelievable. 52,000 people were evacuated, many still living in local shelters. Fire still being fought, as you know. I saw the uh, shelter at Walmart, and it's a tent city. That's created some serious problems. I was at the Elks Lodge, saw the, uh, the, the shelter there. Uh, all my relatives are either in trailers, staying in someone else's home, at a hotel. I mean, imagine what would happen to you if in an hour, you lost everything. It's, it's incomprehensible. There's no question about it. Well, with that said, let's return to the book of James and his warning about how our words can do exactly what we just saw here to the lives of other people. And you think if, I'm being, if you think I'm being extreme, that's not the case. Literally, words have led to the deaths of millions of people. 
literally. Words ignite prejudice, hatred, anger, bitterness, murder, jealousy, revenge, and war. They can destroy individuals, marriages, families, churches, communities, and even countries. Actual fire burns and destroys, and the same thing can be true of our words. And God says, hey, your words count, and I'm counting every word because this is such a critical area. And he warns us up front, no man can tame the tongue. Without, without depending on divine providence, without admitting our own powerlessness, we're not going to be able to stop hurting other people. There are far too many verbal arsonists in the world today. They often love to set fire to people's reputations, character, integrity, and motives. They lo love to burn people down emotionally when they get angry. I hope you notice that, that uh, what James is saying at the end of verse 6. He's saying that all this destructive fire designed to hurt and destroy other people is actually ignited by hell itself. That's remarkable, isn't it? By hell itself. When people get angry and start fighting, often we describe it by saying, man, all hell broke loose. And it's true. It's true. So the next time you use a cruel word or you say something harsh or cutting or insult somebody, now at least you know where those words are coming from. Remember when Jesus said that, I'm sorry, Peter, Jesus said to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter raises his hand as he always did. He gets called on. He goes, you're the Christ, son of the living God. Jesus goes, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. On this confession, I'm going to build my church. You're so blessed. It's all great. Uh, yada, yada, yada. Two verses later, Jesus starts talking about how he's going to go to Calvary. Remember that? And Peter raises his hand again and goes, that's never, that's never going to ever, ever, ever happen. And Jesus said to him, what? Get behind me, Satan. So, I mean, so, sometimes the things people, have you ever had somebody say something to you and you knew that was true? You just had to say in your mind, get behind me, Satan, because you know those words came straight out of hell. Really. Remember Job's wife? Remember, Satan told God, hey, you take away all the goodies and he'll curse you to, his, to your face. The only person he never lost, the only thing he never lost was his wife. And what did she tell him to do? Curse God and die. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah, she was still valuable for the cause of unrighteousness. I'm not trying to blame her in that sense. And imagine her sorrow as well. But often, people say things and, uh, wow. They let the fire of hell burn their loved ones, their friends, their family members, their spouses, co-workers, church members, really. Secondly, he said, it's also like a beast. Isn't that interesting? A beast. A beast. He said, for every kind of beast and bird, a reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but, the, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. Isn't that amazing? We can get tigers to sit on stools. We can get elephants to walk on balls. We can get alligators to roll over and we rub their tummy. Shamu, who knows who Shamu was? Okay, some do. The millennials don't. Shamu, <laughs> Shamu. We can train Shamu, the killer whale. <laughs> we can change, I mean, Flipper, Trigger. Who knows who Trigger was? All right, okay, no millennials. Again, Okay, let's just leave that illustration behind. So basically, he says the tongue is like an undomesticated wild beast. <laughs> Ferocious, untamable, 
restless and carnivorous, always waiting and hiding to spring from the shadows and devour. It's a man-eater. Have you ever driven through like a safari park admiring the animals as they moved about in their natural habitat? It's kind of interesting that there are signs usually posted all the way along that wonderful, beautiful experience that says, don't get out of your car. <laughs> Do not leave the vehicle. Caution. Do not open your window. Why? Even though it's beautiful and peaceful looking, those animals, trust me, are capable of giving, causing you to experience great physical harm and can even kill you. So too, the undomesticated tongue that hasn't really been submitted to Scripture or to the power of the Holy Spirit. Finally, number three, it's compared to a poison. And this is like snake venom. Like snake venom, I kind of like this particular metaphor because snake venom is it's deadly, it's paralyzing, but the thing I liked about the metaphor is that it typically doesn't kill its victims instantly. Right? No. And, and the truth is, a deadly venom doesn't have to be taken in large doses. Poison, a uh, couple of drops will suffice, and over time. I liked it because even though it works slowly, secretively, it is nevertheless lethal. And our words can work the same way. Remember, the kindest word ever said is the unkind word that was never said. The power of the tongue. All right, it has the power to direct the course of our lives. It has the power to destroy the lives of others. Can we change that, John, for next service? It has the power to destroy the lives of others, I'd like to say. And it has the power to defame. It also has the power to defame. Uh, James said, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people that have been made in the likeness of God. This word curse that's used here, uh, it isn't a specific reference to cussing or to profanity, like cussing somebody out. That's not what it's focused on. Instead, it refers to any type of slander or gossip that is expressed, any kind of malicious expression that is designed or describing another person that would discredit their character or cause people to think badly of them. And notice this. This is a great verse, too. It says, the words of a whisperer. You know, if you ever want anybody to wonder what you're talking about, just tell it in a whisper. The words of a whisperer are like delicious mor morsels. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. Isn't that amazing? What's that saying? It's saying, by nature, we love gossip like chocolate-covered macadamia nuts. Someone said that gossip is hearing something you like about somebody you don't. Isn't that true? It's just amazing. We just eat it up. We eat it up. We woof it down. We swallow it whole hog. You see, everyone loves the truth as long as it's about someone else. It's really weird, huh? Someone said that to speak badly of others is a dishonest way of praising yourself. It's a little man who belittles others. There's no question about it. In the end, participating in gossip makes people spiritually sick. It's like eating junk food. It may taste good, but it 
is going to make you spiritually sick. I like this translation. It says, listening to gossip is like eating cheap candy. Do you want that kind of junk food in your belly? No, it'll corrupt you. How about this verse? It says, with words, an evil person can destroy a neighbor. Proverbs 20, 26.20. And notice this is speaking of fire. It actually says, a fire goes out for lack of fuel and tensions disappear when gossip stops. And lastly, Proverbs 17, an evildoer, notice this, listens to wicked lips. Not only can you be guilty of this by saying it, you can be guilty by listening to it. An evildoer listens to wicked lips and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. I'm telling you, refuse to be a guilty listener. And I I just thought today, as I thought about the ministry of South Valley over the decades, I wanted to commend this congregation because over the years, I know that you have refused to traffic in gossip, slander, backbiting, and hearsay. And that's one of the great earmarks of our congregation. It really is. And I'm just proud to be a part of that. Okay, the power of the tongue has the power to direct the course of our lives. It has the power to destroy our lives. It has the power to defame others. But thank God, it also has the power to delight, to delight ourselves and others. James said, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not so, so to be. Does a spring pour forth the same, from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives and a grape vine produce fruit? Neither can... Uh, a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, this means that our words can be used to bless other people. And there are two illustrations here. Number one, fresh water. I like this. The Bible says wise words are like, uh, like deep waters. Wisdom flows like from the wise like a bubbling brook. That's a great verse, huh? How refreshing is that? It says the mouth of a good person is a deep, life-giving well, but the mouth of the wicked is a dark cave of abuse. Proverbs 13, 14, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. And finally, I've always loved this verse because it reminds me of the gospel. It says, good news from far away is like cold water to the thirsty. You know, and the good news of the gospel that came from heaven to earth. Wow, thank God we can have living water springing up within us, quenching our life-giving need. Water is is life-giving. It is refreshing. It is a precious gift. And so are kind, gracious, loving words to a discouraged and hurting person. I like this one too, illustration two. It's compared to a tree. The tongue can also be a tree, beautiful, strong, life-sustaining. It can provide shade, protection, and nourishment. The Bible says a healing tongue is a tree of life, but a deceitful one crushes the spirit. It says the lips of the righteous feed many. Kind words are like honey, sweet to the soul and healthy to the body. There is one whose rash words are like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Okay, got to stop. Takeaways. The first thing I would urge you to do is to get a new heart. All right? If you ever hope to bridle your tongue, then you have to get a new heart. We're told in Ezekiel. It's kind of hard to read that. But God said, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. What is Ezekiel saying? He's talking here about the possibility of receiving a spiritual heart transplant. Seriously. And about getting a new heart and getting it 
from the only one that can give it, and that's Jesus Christ himself. Paul said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, without Jesus Christ in your life, you will never find a, lact- a lasting solution to the temptation that you constantly face to use your words in a harsh hurtful manner. James tells us no man can tame the tongue. I believe him. So in order to change your life and your words, you need a heart transplant. Jesus said that an unhealthy tongue is a symptom of an unhealthy heart. He said the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. From the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. The truth is the heart is the well from which the tongue draws its water. That's why I like to say, you ready? A couple of quick liners. Show me someone with a harsh tongue and I'll show you someone with an angry heart. Show me someone with a negative tongue and I'll show you someone who has a fearful heart. Show me someone with an overactive tongue and I'll show you someone with an unsettled heart. Show me someone with a boastful tongue and I'll show you someone with an insecure heart. Show me someone with a filthy tongue and I'll show you someone with an impure heart. Show me someone with a critical tongue, and I'll show you somebody with a bitter spirit. And the opposite is true. Show me someone with an encouraging tongue, and I'll show you somebody with a joyful heart. Show me someone with a gentle tongue, and I'll show you somebody with a loving heart. Show me somebody with a truthful tongue, and I'll show you somebody with an honest heart. And it goes on and on and on. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, wow, that doesn't sound a whole lot like me. Well, that's why you need a heart transplant. You need to recognize and admit your powerlessness to change your life and your words without the help of Jesus Christ. Now, here's how he changes us once we make that commitment. The Bible says we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is the invisible presence of the infinite God abiding in us, and he comes to empower us to live righteous lives, and one of those things is to control our tongue. The Bible says, Paul said, walk by the Spirit, and guess what? You won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, here's something that's really important. Although the Bible teaches that all Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, not all Christians are filled and empowered and controlled by the Holy Spirit. This is really true. That's why Paul gave the commandment, don't be drunk with wine. You'll be ruined spiritually, but be filled with the Spirit. Notice now how the mouth works when you're filled with the Spirit. Speaking to each other, spiritual things, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? That's how the tongue should be used. The famous biblical scholar, I just thought this was funny when I read it, J. Sidwell Baxter said, the proof that you are filled with the Spirit is not that you speak in an unknown tongue, but that you control the tongue you do know. I thought that was pretty cute. I'm not knocking speaking in tongues, but I just thought that was hilarious. Okay, last thing. Got to close in prayer. Time to go. Give your tongue to God every day. Realize how important it is. And there's that verse again. I start it with it, end with it. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. This starts in the way we talk to ourselves. This is super important. Stop being so negative. Stop expressing your faith against yourself. Begin to affirm the things that God tells you. 
Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. That was a little quick. Who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, I was thinking the other day about the Lord's Prayer. It starts with two words. Our Father. That means the number one thing, the number one priority with God is his relationship to his children. He's a relational God. And he loves you and says positive things about you that are affirmed. And it says, if God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? I mean, we need to speak words of faith instead of words of doubt and self-judgment and criticism and rejection. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. Can we promise to do that to ourselves, to our spouse, to our children, to our friends, our family members, to the members of our congregation? The Bible says only speak words that edify and build people up. How about that as the number one goal? And if you can't say something positive to somebody, why don't we just decide we're not going to say anything at all? Now, that doesn't mean we don't speak the truth. We still speak the truth in love. We learn to speak the truth in love because we have to remember, if you tell people the truth in a loveless way, they're not going to hear it. But if you don't tell the truth in love, they're not going to hear it either. That's the balance. It's a difficult truth, but we all need to be working on it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that James is so direct and so confrontational with us about this critical issue. Lord, we just pray for ourselves that we would stop talking so negatively uh, about who we are. Instead, help us to let you define us, we pray. And Lord, in our relationships with other people, uh, help us to guard our words. Fill us with your spirit so that we might say things that build people up rather than to tear, tear them down, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.